for six years, I had the prestigious privilege of one of the most powerful positions on the Kenai Peninsula. I was the head coach of the Cook and Let Academy boys varsity basketball team, wielding supreme executive power over my little basketball empire. And then technically there was a school board that, you know, principal that would say stuff, blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, I was the one that decided who would make the team and who wouldn't. Now in our case, in a tiny little school where we had more coaches than players, <laughs> you took whoever came, right? We were basically looking, you had to have a 2.0 GPA and a pulse. That was our standards for our basketball team. Warm bodies, come play. Um, I was the one who did get to decide who would be blessed on our team. Who would get playing time and who wouldn't? Who would be declared captain of the team? Who would receive awards at the end of the season? Um, I was telling our team, listen, we don't define success the way that other teams often do. We're not just successful looking back at the end of the season if we had more wins than losses. It's not just did we score more points than the opponents, and it's certainly not just did we look cool. Because these little these guys, they wanted to wear those dumb arm sleeves. I just it wanted to, I just, you know what, we're just gonna move on. I'm not gonna get into that. Our standard was that I would say, if we want to be successful as a team, it would mean that we were useful. And the acronym we would use, U-S-E, was this, unity, selflessness, and excellence. That was the bar that we would use to define in a game as an individual or team, and by the end of the season, were we uh, successful? So playing time being a captain, receiving an award at the end of the year, it wasn't just given to who could score the most points. It wasn't just given to who could slam dunk the basketball, which is good because with a team of white boys, none of them could even come close to dunking, right? That was us. Uh, it's, it's all good. It was those who, who exhibited the right kind of character. We were looking on the inside. We're looking long-term when they graduate, and most of them are not going on to play in the NBA so, so what kind of a person? Were they, were they team-oriented, selfless? Were they giving us the effort? Were they, were they exhibiting humility? It was upside down from the rest of the back, basketball world's standards. Now, true confessions. There was times that I got my own standards and priorities mixed up. And there were probably, th- I know there were times as a coach when I should have benched somebody for having a crummy attitude, but I kept them in. Why? Because they had talent and I wanted to win. There were two opposing kingdoms at play. Now, last week, we saw King Jesus announce his kingdom. That then he called fishermen to come join him on mission, now fishing for people. And this week, he's going to unpack that one little sentence of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near and into what we are calling the greatest sermon ever preached. And for the next six weeks, we're going to walk through this as Jesus unpacks what it looks like to live in this kingdom daily and practically. And he's going to begin his message by declaring, just like I as a varsity coach, he says, I as king am the one who gets to decide who enters into my kingdom and who is blessed in my kingdom. What is this kingdom, my kingdom, look like. Matthew chapter 5, he starts to get into this. The greatest sermon ever preached. Verse 1 of Matthew 5, and the ESV says it this way, seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain. Now the crowds, why are the crowds there? Well, what did we just see at the end of chapter 4 last week? Everybody starts coming to him, the sick and the paralyzed, and, and he, said it's, he heals every disease and affliction among the people. 
So if I came to Jesus and he touched my broke hips and all of a sudden I can dance and I can slam dunk the basketball, I'm probably following Jesus too. I want to hear more about what he's doing and what he can do for me. And so the crowds follow him up this mountain. Now what's interesting here is this is such intentional language as we see another figure in the Bible speaking for God to people from a mountain. Now we've already showed how Jesus was the new Adam, the better Adam. But here we're going to see, and as Matthew unfolds his story, that Jesus is also the new and better Moses. Unpack the story and you'll see the parallels. Moses was born in Egypt. And remember how he was saved as a newborn as the local leader declared death for all of the Jewish male babies. And Moses is spared. And eventually, as an adult, he leads the people through the Red Sea, symbolizing rescue from literal bondage and slavery. And then they go where? Into the wilderness, where they're tested. And it's in the wilderness that Moses goes up a mountain, Mount Sinai, and he receives a word from God to speak to the people, a covenant called the Mosaic Law, and what relationship with God, right relationship, should look like. Now you look at what Matthew's doing, the way he maps this on to Moses' story. Here's Jesus in Matthew 1 and 2, born and saved from the death sentence of a local leader, Herod, for the killing of all the Jew male, Jewish male babies into Egypt in this story. And then as an adult, he comes through the waters of the Jordan River, symbolizing a new rescue from bondage and slavery. And then where is Jesus led to in the next chapter? Into the wilderness, where unlike Israel and Moses' people, he passes the test of the first Adam and that Israel could not. And then Jesus, too, is going to now go up onto a mountain where he will also speak for God, the word made flesh, and he will speak a new and better covenant for how we can be made right with God. This is so cool the way that Matthew does this. And just like Moses gives us five books, the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy of the Old Testament, Jesus, in the course of Matthew, is going to give us five teachings or discourses. Now in Exodus... When the people come to the bottom of the mountain in Deuteronomy chapter 5, if you were reading along with the reading plan for, with us, what do we see happens at the foot of the mountain? There's thunder and lightning and this terror. The people are told if you even touch the bottom of the mountain, you will die, let alone being able to ascend to the top of the mountain. And the people freaked out. They go, Moses, you do it for us. You are the, he was the intercessor between God and man. We cannot approach God's presence. But this time, and that was the last time that we see in recorded scripture, God speaking from a mountain until this moment in Matthew chapter 5. And once again, ascending a mountain this time, what happens? The crowds follow him. The disciples come to him. Jesus is showing that he's going to present a new path of peace to the Father where we can enter into his glorious presence. Now, what it says next is that he, he sat down. Now, when they do this, culturally, this was the position of a rabbi or a teacher. We saw last week that that's what he's come to do, to make disciples, followers, students. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, this is the word of a prophet, one who speaks for God. In this case, Jesus is the word, is God himself. And what does he say? 
Now, now notice who he's talking to. Got to look at audience here. He taught them. Who's the them? Stay in context. You go back up to verse 1. His disciples came to him. He's primarily speaking to his followers. And we'll see why that's a key point in this message as we go along. Now, he's well aware the crowds are listening in the background. But his audience is the disciples. And he begins the most concentrated amount of Jesus' recorded teachings that we have anywhere in Scripture. And the greatest sermon of all time. Or as you millennials would say, best sermon ever. But he starts with this really weird intro. This attention grabber. Like, this is not how I would start my sermons, right? I like to ease you in with a joke. Maybe Jesus could have come up like a stand-up comic. Like, I just flew in from Nazareth, and boy, are my arms tired, right? Something to kind of ease them in. Like, Sadducees, what's the deal with them? Or they're Sadducee. Like, something really, a bad joke like that one. Um, But that's not how Jesus starts. He kicks off with what we commonly call the Beatitudes. Now, the word Beatitudes, a lot of times we're going, what does that word even mean? Uh, Where does it come from? Some people will say these are the Beatitudes attitudes. This is what we're supposed to be. And while that'll sort of preach, that's, that's not where we get that word. It's actually a Latin word, uh, the, the word uh, beati or beatus, which means blessed, or which is often how we see the, these beatitudes um, translated, or happy, fortunate, or well-off. What Jesus is saying, just like the coach of the basketball team, as king, I will tell you who are the blessed ones in my kingdom. But he gives us this really strange list of people who are blessed. Now, we don't often read in larger chunks, but I want to do so today so we can get a big picture before we zero back in. And out of reverence and honor for God and his word, I'd ask you to stand up with me. Would you stand up? I want to read the word together. So out loud with me, and I want us to put our imagination caps on and take ourselves to this mountain where Jesus is speaking these words of life to people as we hear our rabbi teaching the greatest sermon ever. So let's read this together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Amen. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. Now, a real talk here. Jesus, this is a weird list. Like, these are the ones who are living the good life, the blessed life? Come again? Like, if you look at this list, this is like a bunch of mopey Marvins. I, I mean, that's negative Nellie's twin brother. I don't know. Uh, and, and a bunch of, a bunch of um, just doormats, right? People who are getting persecuted, who, who are being downtrodden, who are mourning and, and poor in spirit. Like, how is this the good life? Now, we all want to be blessed, right? We all want to be happy and, and, we, and woven into the very DNA of our American uh, fabric and culture is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What? Many, many, many chase in our country. But 
we often, and, and I've, actually, to bring that up to today, we would call it hashtag blessed, right? And, and we see this on the internet all the time, and this is really often a way for people just to simply brag about the things that they have and you don't, and that we just got back from Hawaii and you didn't, and it's 100 degrees warmer there, literally, right? Hashtag blessed, right? <laughs> hashtag shut it. Um, <laughs> who, who would we call blessed? We would usually, it would be somebody with a big family, right? Somebody who might have a lot of success in their career, someone who would be well off financially, um, someone who just is in some position of power, or maybe wherever they go, the sun shineth upon them. Those are the kind of people that we think of when we think of those who are living the good life. And Jesus here intentionally obliterates every expectation that his disciples or his cr- the crowds or you and I would have of what this would look like. It's not political power. It's not military might. He says, you want to be a- a great in my kingdom? It's going to be upside down from what you would imagine. So much for the prosperity gospel, right? He says here, because many of us get this idea that our income level or our health is a direct correlation with how happy or mad God is at us. And he, Jesus shuts that idea down right from the beginning. These words are intended to blow our expectations out of the water. So what's the purpose of this list that Jesus presents? Why does he start his message this way? Well, a couple of things. It's often, it's important, like we did with the membership talk, to, to talk about what things, what are, what's not being said as much as it is to say what it is being said. So we're going to say two things that the Beatitudes are not, and then one thing that they are. First of all, the Beatitudes are not a list of requirements for entering the God's kingdom or receiving God's blessing. And I am so glad that's true, because I would be disqualified. We often think of of this, this kind of, there's like a heavenly bouncer who, who is saying, you're not getting in, and he's checking through the Beatitudes. Were you meek enough? Let me see your morning face. Nah, you need to work on that, right? No, you got, you got, your income level was too high. He said poor. Sorry, you're not going to be able to enter the kingdom, right? And then, then oftentimes, but who, who was Jesus preaching to? He was preaching to his disciples who were already following Jesus. He's not saying this is how you follow me. He's talking to those followers that are already following him. He, he's also not just giving us a new, higher law of Moses, like, Moses' law was all right, but I'm going to raise the bar and show you, this is how you, what you really have to do if you wanted to get into the kingdom. As though Jesus set the bar so high that as you read the sermon, you just go, well, we can't do that. We need salvation. That is not the central purpose of this message. The Beatitudes are also not just an, simply an idealistic picture of the future. This isn't just what heaven will be like someday. Sometimes people will say this sermon is just too hard for anybody to actually live out. And so Jesus is just describing what life will be like when he comes back. When he's really ruling and reigning over this world physically as he had promised. But if that's true, then it doesn't make sense. Because why would people be persecuted for righteousness, righteousness, <laughs> righteousness's sake? Say that five times. Say that once. Turn let alone five times. Why would they, he's later going to call them to turn the other cheek. Why would you do that if, if Jesus is ruling and reigning? Now, there is a lot of this that will not be fully realized until someday. But I fully believe that Jesus intended these things to begin to begin now. So what is this? It's not a list of requirements, and it's not just what's going to happen in the future. This is what I believe. The Beatitudes are promised blessings 
for citizens of the kingdom, Jesus is transforming. The Beatitudes are promised blessings given to, for, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus, this kingdom that Jesus is transforming. In other words, Jesus, what did Jesus come to do? To make all things new. Jesus is not saying here, do these things and earn God's blessing. What he's saying is, here is a description of what life looks like for followers of Jesus living according to God's kingdom, God's standards, God's will and way in a world that is not yet fully transformed, far, far from it, but that Jesus has come and is in the process of redeeming and recreating to be a place of beauty and delight as God had originally intended back in the Garden of Eden. And he's calling us to live in the present as it will be fully one day in God's promised future. Jesus is saying, this is where the blessing lies. And it's not what you or I would ever have dreamed the good life to be. We're going to see the Beatitudes, two parts to them. The first half talks about our relationship with God. And the second half is going to then talk about our relationship with other people. And again, the new Moses, what do the Ten Commandments do? First half of the commandments, talking about the vertical relationship. And then the second half, in light of that, here's what the horizontal relationships look like in our lives. The other thing to note here is that these are not just random little things Jesus is throwing out. The greatest teacher of all time is walking us through a very intentional flow to make a very intentional point. So let's briefly walk through these eight Beatitudes and see what it looks like. Who is blessed in the kingdom? The first one, he said, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does this mean? The first people, he says, are blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, the word poor here, it literally means to be crouched like a beggar, to be lacking and helpless, to be without, to be destitute. And what does he say that they're without, lacking, poor in? Poor in spirit. The Greek word, I mean, it's, it, the word means breath or the power by which we live. So he is saying here, out of the gates, who's the first person to be blessed in the kingdom? Those who are lacking the power to live. Those who are spiritually dead. Why? And, and we're going to notice a formula. He's going to say, blessed are the blank for, and here's the reason. Here's the, here is the blessing that he's going to give. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom and blessing is available to those who are bankrupt of life, who have no goodness of their own, which is great news because that's all of us, amen? This is who he invites into the kingdom. Those who don't have life, Come on in. This starts off with a great note. I'm getting jacked up. Blessed are those who mourn is the next blessing. And who's those who mourn? Now, he's not just talking about the Eeyores of the world. He's not just talking about the mopey people. Like, you're crying, here's your blessing sticker, right? That's not what he's describing. Remember, there's a cohesive order to this. He's talking about those who experience grief from their lack of life. Those who are living in a broken world of dead, evil people in our own heart, and those around us. And we mourn because of it, this world that we live in. And what does he promise for those who mourn? He promises comfort. I'm going to comfort those who are living in a way that they should not be living. I've come. And blessed are the meek, the humble, or gentle is what this word means. And when he's speaking to the meek, this is our 
position before God, when we see our own spiritual poverty and are mourning for it, mourning over it. And what does he, what does he promise to do over and over again in Scripture for the humble? He exalts them. The, the, the promise here, the blessing, is that they will inherit the earth. He's going to show us, you want to be the greatest in my kingdom? You become the least of these. Those who are the ones who will become the greatest and rule and reign with me. And not only is this a promise that one day we'll get to soar around the universe, ruling and reigning with Jesus, as cool as that is to look forward to, also today, for those who will humble themselves, see themselves in their humble position before their God, this is truly the better life. We know the people out there who are running tantrums because they don't get their way, insisting and demanding their own way. And where does that lead them? Misery, right? Trying to get your own way, it doesn't, it doesn't give you what you're wanting. But those who will humbly receive their lot of life that the Lord has given them, he says, that's where the blessing is. That's where the blessing is. And he also says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are those of us who see our empty position before God. We hunger and thirst for that which we do not have, righteousness in us and a right relationship with God. And what's the promised blessing? They'll be satisfied. They'll be satisfied. John chapter 4, Jesus, he, he plays this out. He says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. See, we take a drink of water from our hydro flask. Later on in the day, we get thirsty again. But he says, this water, the water that I will give him, will become in him a spring of water welling up to what? Eternal life. Those of you that are poor in spirit, that don't have life in yourself, and you come to me for it, I will give you the kind of life and water that will never run out. That's the promise. This is our true position before God. We have nothing when we stand sinners before a holy God. But then we turn the corner. Those of us who truly recognize our humble estate before our God, this is what it will start to look like in the way we treat other people. He says, blessed are the merciful. The merciful here, he's talking about people in, in our world. What, what, do we, what do we tell, what, what does the world say? Push other people out of your way so that you can get ahead. Push them down so that you will come up. Our mantra today is you do you. You stand up for yourself, you take what you need, you get yours, doesn't matter what other people have or don't have. And Jesus comes and says the exact opposite. He says, we have come, why did he come? Not to be served, but to serve. He says, we come giving mercy, washing others' feet. We come to bring compassion and care for the world around us. Now notice what the promise is here. He says, for they shall receive mercy. Now, now note here, this is not mercy from God because we give mercy to others. This is a blessing. This is favor. The amount of, of mercy that we are shown, when we see that we have nothing and God has been merciful to us, that is the amount of blessing, of mercy, that we're going to pass on to other people. Freely we've received, now freely to give, regardless of how they're treating us. Blessed, he says, are the pure in heart. The pure in heart here, now, now what does this mean? I love Soren Kierkegaard's line. He says, purity of heart is to will one thing. It's an amazing line, and that's just the title of his book. <laughs> like, this guy was brilliant. The purity of heart is to will one thing. This means to be single-minded, to have one uh, unadulterated purpose in your life. And that is, not my will, but yours be done. Not my, not my agenda, but yours. To want what God wants and nothing else. 
And what's the promise here? They shall see God. They shall see God. You see, those of us who want what he wants, we begin to see reality the way he sees reality, and we start to see him in everything. To the pure, all things are pure. And we see God at work in whatever, no matter how desolate the situation looks, we see the kingdom of light advancing and God being true to his promises for those who will receive it. Then he says, blessed are the peacemakers. This single-mindedness, this mission that we're on is to make peace between God and man and man with fellow man and and women. You guys are peace. We want peace with you too. (laughs) Um, And and what what is the promise? He says, for they shall be called sons of God. Now the word here, sons of God, it, it, means, it means to have the characteristic of, that's your blank in your notes if you're following along, the characteristic of. So when he calls James and John the sons of thunder, it doesn't mean th- thunder made a couple little babies. It means that they are thunderous, thunder-like, taking the characteristic of, of thunder on, right? And so what he's saying, when God adopts us into his family, we start to look like him And so when we start being the kind of people who make peace, they say, that's God's son. He is is like the Almighty. Just like when people say me, they say, oh man, that's that's Scott's son. He looks just like him. Except Scott can grow a better beard, right? Like that one, I can't even connect it. Look at that sad side over there. Um, last, Last promise. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, this is the most upside down statement he's made yet. Blessing means being persecuted. That does not sound like a blessing. It says these are the ones, the promise is the same one he made to the first, knowing he's closing his statements. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he gets more specific here. Blessed are you, he gets personal. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's the blessed life. And not only that, but here, look at what he says to it. Be, rejoice and be glad. You want me to rejoice when other people are beating me for following Jesus? Why? Here's the blessing. Here's the promise. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in good company. There were other men, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Most people would not say they lived a blessed life. But they had an eternal view that those living here right now did not. And they they will be... what, What did Romans chapter 8 say? It says, for I consider that these present temporary sufferings are not even worthy to be compared with the weight of glory that's coming. It's not just about temporary comforts. He says, you take the long view. And in God's kingdom, while that person looks like having the worst life ever, they are the most blessed. And this too will be made right. He turns the corner finishing up his first sermon point, he moves from character to influence. He talks about us being salt and light in the world. If He says, if, if this is your character, if this is who you are, humble before your God and loving other people, here, here's what effect this will have in the world. The two things. The first one is salt. Verse 13, you are salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, this illustration can get lost on us because, like, what do we use salt for? We put it on our french fries, and, and it softens our water, right? I mean, like, first world problems, right? In, in that day, they didn't have Safeway or refrigerators. Preserving food was difficult, and it was very, very important. 
In fact, it was so important that often, like soldiers in particular, but many people were actually partially paid in salt. This is where our word salary comes from, the word salarium, where, where, where salt comes from. And when we would tell somebody they're worth their salt, that's saying they're worthy of the wages that they're receiving, because in that day they were paid by salt. So what's he saying? Preserving what? God's kingdom, God's right way of living. It's important and it's difficult. Important and it's difficult. And then the, the other aspect of salt here, um, we know the expression rubbing salt in the wounds. What are we saying there? Well, well, we know that the salt helps prevent the spread of decay. That's its purpose. But what else? the saying also implies, ouch! That hurts! That is not welcome in my wounds. You're adding salt onto something that already hurts. And if we're truly being salt in this world, the world, it, we're going to sting in the wounds at times. The gospel is offensive. Hence the line about persecution, Right? I mean, nobody's, typically, the response isn't, hey, thanks for pointing out my sin, right? I mean, that's not, that's not your typical response. It more likely feels like salt in the wound. But what he says here, he says, he's asking them, are you advancing God's kingdom or not? Because listen, there's no neutral ground. We're advancing one or the other. And he says, salt that isn't salty is useless. It's thrown out and trampled underfoot. Be who you are and influence the world. The other, the other um, example that he uses is light. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill, which is often what Jerusalem was called, cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a standing, it gives light to all in the house. So he's making the same point, similar point to what he said with salt. Be what you are called to be. What do you do with the light? Hide it under a bushel. That was some conviction. No, I'm going to let it shine, right? Be who you're called to be. And here is the effect, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Israel was called to keep the law of Moses. And, and God said, through that, you will be a light to the nations. As people see you worshiping God rightly and loving other people the way that we're called to, the nations will see how bizarre, how different that lifestyle is and be ushered into worshiping God and loving others in the same way. And here he's saying the same thing. When we live right, we advance God's kingdom, we bring glory to his name, and we shine a light in the darkness. So here's the question. How do we advance the kingdom? Jesus is saying here, it's not the world's way. You don't send out the tanks. This is not a giant game of risk where we're chasing people down and putting them into half Nelsons. Believe in Jesus, right? That's not, that's a weird thing. You're going to get arrested. I don't recommend it. How are we to advance the gospel? He tells us here, it's by making peace and not war. It's by showing mercy and not taking revenge for yourself. It's by being persecuted, not taking the lives of another. It's not by being cocky, but by being humble. And he says, when we do this, when we defend the weak, when we care for the orphan and the widow and the poor and the sick, when we forgive, when we love even those who don't love us back, especially those who don't love us back, we remind the world what we're really here for, who's really in charge, and we continue the true revolution that Jesus started. The Sermon on the Mount is our marching orders. It's how God's kingdom of light advances in a dominion of darkness. So a great follow-up question, if I was reading this, which I guess I was, if this is the good life, the blessed life, how, how do I get this? 
How, how do I become these things? How do I receive this blessing? Because if I have a bankrupt spirit, if I'm thirsting and hungering for things that I don't have, and I've seen my own life, I've seen the lack of mercy that I show, the lack of peace that I bring with me, the lack of purity in my own heart. So how do I access this kingdom and its blessing? How does this become true? And the disciples ask the same question 14 chapters from now. They're talking to Jesus when he's talking to that rich young ruler. And he said, it's easier to jam a camel through a needle's eye than it is for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. And they have the right response to go, then who in the world can get into the kingdom? And what does Jesus say to his disciples? It's so beautiful. He says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, <laughs> all things are possible. You see, when Jesus is speaking these blessings, he's not saying, do this and I'll bless you. He is speaking into reality the promised blessings themselves. And how does he do that? How and why can these blessings become a reality? Because two years after this mountain sermon, he's going to climb another mountain. He's going to go on a hill far away. And this time he's going to go all alone. No crowds, no disciples. Even his father will turn his face away from him. And he alone will bear the sin and shame of the poor in spirit, of those who mourn, those who hunger and long to be right. And he himself, through the cross, he will give us mercy. He will purify our hearts. And he himself will make peace with God as he is persecuted for righteousness. As he's reviled and spoken evil of by men and killed. And as the roaring lion wakes up and starts to breathe, he gives life to those who are the poor in spirit. The reward for his sake was the joy that he knew would be his afterward, receiving us into his promised kingdom. This is what the Beatitudes look like. Jesus carried these things out we couldn't. Jesus was the salt and light. He preserved his father's kingdom. He was the one that shone a light into the darkness. That's my king. He is all of these things for us. You see, the Beatitudes are not demands. They are promises that Jesus came to fulfill. Jesus is riffing off the Old Testament promises and prophets all through this thing. He's like a DJ, some little Deuteronomy over here, and ah, ah, Isaiah. Like he's like, he's Isaiah 61, what does he say? Look at, the, look at the Beatitude words. I've come to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort those who mourn. Jesus is saying that you, you it's, he's not saying you can't enter my kingdom if you're smiling or you have too much money. Jesus' point here is that I'm the one that came to give the, li- the blessing of life to the dead. I'm the one that came to comfort those who are mourning. I'm the one who came to comfort the brokenhearted, to lift up the lowly, to fill those who lack with good things where they'll never hunger and thirst again. Jesus is saying, regardless of your circumstances, there's a place at my table for you. The kingdom is for everyone. And just like a cook inlet, where I said anybody who wanted to be on the team could be. Now, in this case, it's because we were desperate. <laughs> but in Jesus' case, he's saying, you, we have room for you, not because you've earned your way in, but because I came, became for you what you could never be. And I gave you life for my own death. Remember, this comes on the heels of Jesus' ministry in action, where he gave life 
to those who didn't have it. He was healing the sick. In the same way here in in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I am speaking words of life and will eventually give you my life so that you can be the blessed that I'm talking about here. I love Charles Wesley's, um, his lines from his, his, one of his hymns. He says, he speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. For all who will come humbly, recognizing their true state before God, with open hands, hunger and thirst, he says, ask and you shall receive. So I want to end here. If, if you'd close your eyes with me. I want us to, to ask this question to ourselves. Which kingdom's blessings am I pursuing? Which kingdom's blessings am I res- pursuing? Because the, we're going to be advancing one kingdom's agenda or the other. We're going to be seeking after a treasure. So is it what the world's outlining for us? Or is it what Jesus is outlining for us here? So ask some, some questions. Let's do some heart work here. This last week, was I busy showing mercy to my haters? Those who would talk bad about me or brush me off or treat me wrong? Or or was I busy and caught up with justifying myself, defending myself in my own mind, maybe by my words? That I exhibit a purity in heart, that I only wanted what God wanted, or were my interests divided? Was I chasing the comforts of the world or maybe some kind of temporary self-medicating solution? I was leaning into pornography or online shopping or alcohol or whatever, food, whatever it might be. Was I making peace? Was I helping reconcile relationships and hearts that are broken? Or was I a part of the war through my complaining, my critical spirit, my gossiping, things, again, in my heart or maybe spoken out loud? Was I arrogantly relying on myself and my own resources? Or was I coming empty-handed to him? Now, if you're like me, it doesn't take long to get through that checklist where I start seeing, seeing the chinks in my armor and, and, and seeing exposed that I'm chasing after the wrong kingdom. And so where we land with that is the good news that Jesus came and said, you are poor in spirit. You don't have righteousness. You cannot on your own show mercy to others and have a purity of heart. You're not going to endure when people revile you. And so the roaring lion rose from the grave, giving us his life, dying in our place, so that we, as he's transforming this kingdom, we could start to become those people. So what's your posture before the Lord? Is it closed-fisted arrogance or rebellion, or is it open-handed humility, receiving from Jesus these blessings of life and believing his words here? Receiving the blessings of Jesus saying, my kingdom way is better. Living upside down, knowing that the temporary sufferings of this world cannot be compared with the future glory that is to come. And next week, we're going to look at this new heart, what this new life looks like in everyday situations. This gets real. Father, may we receive these blessings that you've given us in Christ. May we become the kind of people that you're transforming us into humbly before our God loving the people around us, transforming and advancing your kingdom, not by taking lives, but by laying down our lives for others as you did for us. This is our only, our living hope is Jesus himself. And in this name, 
we gather and we pray. Amen.